Let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. God's word comes to us in verses 11 through 16. As we continue this series on loving the local church. And I'm going to attempt to instruct and encourage us on why we just did that. Question number five of the New City Catechism, along with how we do community together. Catechism and community, two more vital elements to love that God offers through his local church. But let's give our attention uh, to his word, starting in verse 11 through 16, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read it for us. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the works of for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds, up, builds itself up in love. Okay, this is God's word. Two more vital elements, catechism and community. Catechism and community. Why does this church even do a catechism? Why do we have this thing called confession of faith? I'm gonna answer two questions. Why we need to catechize one another, and second, how do we do community together? Okay, why do we catechize one another at this church? Second, how do we do community together? Why catechize? We just read, Apostle Paul's passion and plea for every church it's not that one person or select few become mature and grow and become more like Jesus. He says, until we all, he says all, everyone who comes would be mature in manhood, that you would look and behave more like Jesus and that you would not be thrown, tossed to and fro like children by human schemes or false doctrine. So to catechize literally means to teach audibly, orally, biblical truth in an orderly way. To catechize literally means to teach orally, biblical truth in an orderly way. I've got three reasons why we do this. Okay, three reasons why we do this. First, the catechisms were made to offer a very clear and helpful summary of core Christian beliefs. The catechisms and what we also call confessions are summaries that are helpful of Christian core beliefs. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? What's going to happen in the future? How do you become a Christian? How do you live a Christian life? How do you apply things of Jesus to very stressful, fearful situations of life? Wouldn't you want to know these things? What is God like? What did he say he's like? These are helpful and clear summaries of Christian core beliefs. There's a pastor who is catechizing in an orderly fashion, children in a gang-infested region of Philadelphia, and many parents and other local, even teachers and pastors would ask this pastor, why are you bothering catechizing 
Little children who don't go to church, they're in a very poor gang-infested territory, and to their shock, here was the pastor's response. These kids know nothing whatsoever about God or Jesus or sin. They've never even heard the words except as curse words. We're building a framework in their minds of words and ideas and concepts so that when we do tell them about sin and the Savior who came to die for them, there is a way for them to understand what we are saying. Why do we catechize? I don't know if any of you can read from Genesis all the way to Revelation and on your own have a crystal clear, helpful summary of everything that it taught. Catechisms and confessions are clear and helpful summaries and it actually builds a framework language, vocabulary, concepts and words and ideas so that you can better even understand the scriptures, vice versa. Here's a second reason why we catechize. The catechisms humble us and the catechisms keep us connected with the wisdom and the truth from the past to get ready for the present and the future. Let me say that again. A second reason why we catechize one another is it keeps us humble and it keeps us connected to the wisdom and truth of the past to get us ready for the present and the future. Now, I was a history major back in college. And there's two opposite areas you could do with history. First, you can over-glorify the past. You can always say, oh, it was Christian America back then. It was so much better back then. Oh, in the 1940s and 50s in America, that was true Christian America. Do you know that there was no civil rights yet? Racism was systemic. I don't know how you call that Christian America, but we over-glorify the past. The opposite area to do with history is to completely ignore it, neglect it. You don't know any history, so you just think, oh, the latest thing must be the greatest thing. The most current trend must be the most advanced trend. And so what we do is we repeat the same historical mistakes. Catechisms humble us and keep us connected with historical wisdom and tradition, which is biblical truth, and get us ready for the present and the future. Let me give us a matter of history. This is a matter of historical fact. Most, if not all, heretics, heretics are those who do not believe in right belief in Christ. Most, if not all, heretics, and the scriptures actually give us an example that Satan himself, they quote scripture. Most heretics and cults and things that really are going to lead your life into utter destruction quote scripture. They all use kind of the same verbiage. There's the usual mentions of words like life change, blessing, baptism, anointing, inspiration, transformation, faith, hope, and love, peace, healing, power, God, even Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit. But my question, my friends, is do you know what those words mean? Do you know what they should be used for? Do those words refer and connect you to the one and true living God? Catechisms and confessions were actually made because of heresies and divisions and false beliefs and false practices. And in history, intelligent, godly, humble people got together and said, We've got to come up with a summary of faith so that all of our people can be clear. The confessions and catechisms were made so that we could speak and teach and train people with the truth in love. Do you know how to discern and filter? 
all the people who are using the same lingo, oh, you can go to actually the Apostles' Creed. You can actually go to the Heidelberg Catechism. You can go to the New City Catechism. Hey, before you knock it, that it's a little bit ancient or old, I just ask you, have you read it? Have you read it? Have you understood it? And after you have read it and understood it, I would challenge you this. If you don't like it because it's old, write your own. I would love it. I'll applaud you. I'll be the first to back you and support you. If you can come up with a biblically sound, succinct, moving, compelling, and helpful summary of Christian beliefs throughout the scriptures, please write it, publish it, sell it. You'll make CCSE famous. But until we can come up with a better summary of our own, catechisms and confessions humble us and keep us connected with the wisdom and the truth passed down to us. Here's the third reason why we do catechisms. First, clear and helpful summary of Christian core beliefs. Second, humble and keep us connected. Third, they're designed in bite-sized portion, question and answer format to be memorable, to become a vital part of you. Catechisms are instructional. They're edifying to actually become a vital part of you. Got one confession to make. Anytime, anywhere, no, no matter what context, I hear it or read it, and I see or hear these words. I made a G today. I made a G today. In my head, I'm playing, but you made it in a sleazy way. Every time. That is from Tupac. That one rap lyric has infested and ingrained me for the rest of my life. But you made it in a sleazy way. I'm always thinking that in my heart. Because anything you are memorizing, singing, which is next week's lesson from DP, anything that is systematic or progressive, it becomes a part of you. How do we train and teach each other to attain to full maturity? How do you really become more like Jesus? How do we really grow up? You got to know some things. How do you get to know those things? Catechisms are a great, great help. They're a tremendous help. You know, Juan and I and the staff are so excited prepping and praying and just throwing out this thing called leadership edification and and, and development this summer. It starts in July. But I gotta, I gotta tell you, I got this kind of, a little bit of a suspicion and fear. <clears throat> We're gonna invite pastors and leaders and churches all across LA because I have always dreamt as a local pastor, it would be great that if another church offered for free training for all of my servant leaders, my deacons and elders and myself, I would just love to go learn and they could offer it for free. Guess what? That's what Christ Central's doing this summer. And we're saying it's a free six-week program. We have six excellent stellar speakers with topics that are totally relevant, prayed for, that would train us at this time. It's really for all of us to be able to attain full maturity and bless other people, one more for the gospel. But I'll tell you what would be really lame and sad. It'd be really lame and sad that more people from outside our church come to this thing than the people who actually attend CCSC. LEAD is another program to give us systematic, clear, orderly, progressive, memorable teaching that will become a part of you. I guarantee 
It will not be a waste of time. Catechisms are clear and helpful summaries of Christian faith. Catechisms humble us and keep us connected with the wisdom and truth from the past. And catechisms are made, they're designed like the LEAD program to become a vital part of you. Dorothy Sayers, an old Southern author, wrote this article entitled The Lost Tools of Learning. It's available on the internet and in print. And basically in this article, stay with me, she is laying out classical Christian education. She is describing the process of ancient Christian education. It's actually in other lingo called the trivium or classical Christian education, which has three parts, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. These are the three different stages of childhood development. Dorothy Sayers in her article called those three stages, parrot, pert, and poet. Grammar, logic, rhetoric, parrot, pert, poet. A parrot, usually around the ages of four through nine, children, in starting with my own, take great, great, great delight in memorizing anything. Who is God? Why did God make you? What is, it, what is the Trinity? Children, although they may not understand a word you're saying, can memorize. They have great capacity and they take great delight. A great delight in it. That's the parrot stage. Parrot, you just parrot. A second stage of development is the pert stage. We're usually around the ages of nine through 12. This is where my youngest daughter falls into, Elizabeth, where children began to analyze the data with which they have memorized, but because they lack full understanding or poetry or rhetoric yet, they ask questions and questions and questions and questions, and sometimes they're a little bit irritating. I have good days where Elizabeth asks me questions. Daddy, daddy, why did God do that? Daddy, why does the Bible say this? Daddy, what do you think is going to happen after Israel or all this stuff happens? I don't know where she got that. There are good days. Then there's other bad days where she says, Daddy, Daddy. Right away she said, Daddy. I said, no, no, not, not Daddy today. It's irritating and rude. Just let me take a peaceful, quiet walk. And then she'll ask me questions. Daddy, what about Catholics? Daddy, what about Muslims? Daddy, what about this or that? And I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm irritated that day. But you know, even those days where I say to her and don't want her to ask me so many questions, it's a challenge to the parent. I better learn this stuff. I better come up with better answers someday. You know, I don't know how long I can get away with the excuse. Daddy's just tired today. Don't talk to me. And the catechisms and confessions in the pert stage, ages 9 through 12, are forcing parents, learn it yourself. Oh, now we get to the poetry stage. Oh, this is where Taylor's at. Well, you can't stop them from talking. Poetry, rhetoric, they apprehend and now articulate reality in ways that they have never been used to. But because they were a parrot first, then they developed into a pert, and now they became a poet. Do you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we were just instructed when we have one of our sacraments called communion or the Lord's Supper? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Apostle Paul instructs all of us, and we instruct you just like Apostle Paul. Little kids shouldn't come to that table. Do you know why? Because we're like ages. We don't like your young age. Little kids aren't able to, quote, discern the body and the blood yet, end quote. Little kids are parrots and perts, but they have to become poets, meaning they have to apprehend, articulate, and be able to say 
that the body and the blood represents by faith the body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul says, this supper or sacrament does you no good if you don't understand. It actually can hurt you if you don't understand. But for Christian parents who catechize, teach, Orally in a systematic, progressive, orderly way, early on, we have all the confidence in the world by the grace of the Holy Spirit that our children are going to become spiritual poets. Don't you want that for your kids? That they're going to have spiritual discernment, spiritual powers to articulate and apprehend not only core Christian beliefs, but live it out. I went to seminary. Seminary is a graduate school of theology. For most uh, pastors, it's a required thing. You've got to go through three or four years of graduate school of theology. And I, I, thought, I thought of myself as a pretty smart guy. I went to seminary around 1995. And in my first year, it dawned on me, I am like way behind almost every other student at Westminster Seminary in San Diego. I am way, way, way behind. Here's why. Because I was never catechized. I grew up in a church. I knew a lot of songs. I knew a lot of lingo. I knew a lot of activities and motions. I knew a lot of things. But when it came to doctrine, catechism, confessions, really understanding the Bible said that, I was like starting all over. Now, my parents and friends here, you know. Do you want to learn a new language now at the age of 40 or 30? Slower, dumber, lazier we have become. The younger they are, the better they are. They take great delight in parroting. And they become perts. And then they can become poets. This is just some of the reasons why we catechize one another. By the way, although I never distinguish this at this church, our church happens to belong to a tradition called we're a reformed church, we're a Presbyterian church. Do you know that in all of the things we do on Sunday worship service, this is just the one and only thing that looks and sounds like other reformed churches? The one confession the one catechism, please do not just let it pass by. Understand why we do it. Now here's the second part. How do we do community together? How do we do community together? Apostle Paul says every joint, every part, every ligament, we're all in it together. Meaning, I cannot grow. I cannot fully attain to where Jesus wants me to go without you. You cannot fully attain. You can't get there without me. We're the body of Jesus Christ. So how do we do community together? I think one of my favorite all-time quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he wrote, for by himself he cannot help himself, for the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Oh, preacher, oh, pastor, Harold, you, you must always have your heart just so moved and fresh by the gospel. No, I don't. 
My natural default mode is to have a cold, distracted, forgetful, hardened, sinful heart. If you left me to myself, the gospel and Jesus would not be fresh and powerful. It is amazing to me, however, that the word of Jesus Christ from someone else is that much more effective to me. I need preachers, I need pastors, I need a church, I need Christian community. You know, this is why we birthed Christ Central Network. Starting tomorrow to Wednesday, I ask for your prayers, about 25 pastors are coming together and Christ Central Network is birthed out of the dire need that pastors need companions and collaboration, companionship and collaboration. And we're going to get together and pray for each other. Relax and enjoy things together. Instruct one another. Please, please pray for us. I am more convinced than ever in this day and age that pastors, Christians, leaders. Now, look, I am not saying it anyway. Oh, if you ask this pastor, you'll never hear from me that pastors are superior and better than you. I've lost that long time ago. Pastors aren't superior better than you. Pastors, however, are to exhibit how you should live the Christian life. Pastors are to exhibit how you should live and follow Jesus. And about two months ago, as you know, I have some back problems, and my back was really sore, I was really in pain, and I was sitting over at Artesia in my office around 3.30 p.m., and I really do like massages, they help me. They're therapeutic, they really help me. It really hurt that day. So I called my regular place, which is R&R Thai Spa, right on Pioneer Boulevard near church. And they were busy because it was last minute. So I yelped another massage place. I'd never been there, but it had gotten good reviews. And so I went in there about 3.34 p.m., got my much-needed massage. And at the end of the massage, my massage therapist, um, she offered me something. Just right there. With the towel basically naked, finished the hour massage, and she offered me something. And she saw the look on my face. I turned white, just white cold, and I was shocked. And even before audibly I had to say anything, she knew just by the look on my face, it's a no. It's not even a no. I'm shocked that you even motioned or offered anything. And so she was really embarrassed, and her face turned all red. Was, ah, ha, 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 I, thought, I thought you wanted something, da, da, da. This is in mid-afternoon on a five-minute walk from our church in Artesia. After I walked out of the massage place, I immediately told my wife, Sunny, Sunny, you wouldn't believe what happened today in mid-afternoon. This lady offered something. My wife, in her classic empathetic fashion, said, you better not. This is why men need men, women need women. So I went to my two men, male, pastor accountability friends, told them that day. Then a couple of days later, a gospel coalition conference, I told my staff. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I'm not saying I'm above there. I was not tempted at that moment. I was just too shocked. But I don't trust myself that I won't be tempted. I look around, I don't trust myself that I'm in any way more disciplined or godly or stronger than anybody else. And so here's what I learned. I better tell my wife, 
I better tell my church, I better tell my accountability partners because they better pray for me and they better ask me any question, any time about are you ever going to go back there again? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, becoming more like Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, patience, patience. How do you grow in patience? You need other people. That's obvious. Patience, kindness. How do you become more kind? You need community, other people. Goodness. How do you grow in goodness? You need other people. This massage incident convinced me that the last fruit of the Spirit just as much needs other people. You know, I used to think self-control, self-control, that's all about the Holy Spirit in me. No, you know how I get self-control? It's about the Holy Spirit and his people. Even that one I can't get. Even the last one I can't get without you. How do we do community together? Where every joint and part stays rooted and connected to the source of life and attains full maturity. I've got two things, two aspects. First, it takes a commitment. It just takes a commitment. That's why we have membership. You make audible public vows. I commit. I commit. I commit. Tom Rayner did a research article back in just this last month, May of 2017, And he noticed about church attendance, quote, about 20 years ago, a church member was considered active in the church if he or she attended church three times a week. I remember those days in the 80s. My parents were one of them. At least three times a week. Then you're active. Today, a church member is considered active in the church if he or she attends three times a month. I think the national average now has gone dipped under 50%. The average American church goer or worshiper just goes about 50%. Now, we have all churches that you can ever attend. I assure you, we will never make you feel bad or guilty about you need a vacation. Please go take them. We love it. Your kids have a sports game. They're, the only caveat, you know, if you, you need to continue to go to your, 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 your kids' sporting events and activities, I would make this exception. If you know they're going to be like Olympian, college scholarship good, Go. If not, they're going to turn out like me. It's all a waste of time. (laughs) But games, activities, breaks, I'm sick, I got to work, great, good, take your breaks. But do not let that become the norm. Do not let that become a habit. Do not let that become a continual excuse. Your excuse is your norm. Commit, commit. To commit to something means I have to say no to everything else except that thing. Do you know what that means? That's actually what it means. You have to limit all other options and you choose one. Oh, that's hard in this day and age, isn't it? FOMO is so real. Commitment means I cannot sing with that praise leader, meet that person, hear this preacher, get those donuts, and then go to that retreat. It means I'm committed to one. And nobody in their right mind, Christian or not, is going to say, Are you, do you become a better person? Just, just a better person. Do you become a better person by sleeping around or do you become a better person by loving one person? 
Do you become a better person by just committing to one or just never commit? Here's another feature about commitment. Commitment. This is how we do community together. Commitment. Longevity, longevity, longevity. Real estate. Location, location, location. Church of Jesus Christ in this day and age? You can travel anywhere. You can change jobs. You can go to a different school. You can church hop because someone just kind of pissed you off. The slightest thing didn't fit your idealistic patterns. Longevity, longevity, longevity. When I first was asked to consider coming to this church, which was called Swedish Presbyterian Church English Ministry, one of the deacons at that time, I distinctly remember, said, you know, Harold, we see that your first full-time pastor was five, five and a half years. We'd like you to make a commitment to double that. And the reason why he said double that is because no one stays that long. And actually, 10 years have passed, actually, to this day. Today marks the completion of 10 years. And I just naively said, oh, yeah, I can do that. But it's like, it's the same yes you said at your marriage day. Oh, yeah, I can for better or for worse just love him till the rest of my life. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but then about 10 years later on, by the grace of God, wow, <laughs> it worked. Longevity, longevity. If I were Catholic... I tell you, the next statement I'm going to make is like ex-cathedra. It's like papal. It's like full authority. I wish you would believe it like a theorem. It's equal to scripture. I'm not. I'm not even close. But this is the statement. It's pretty dang close. In 20 years of pastoral ministry, I will tell you, in 2027, 10 years later, your spiritual condition and vibrancy and witness will be directly correlated to, if not exactly equal to, the kind of real community you have in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. In 10 years, your spiritual condition, your vitality, and your witness to a dying world is directly correlated to, if not exactly equal to, what kind of real community you have in Jesus Christ? Because the word of Christ in your heart is way too dang weak. We need the word of Christ in our brothers and sisters. Commitment, commitment, limit options, longevity. Here's a second, and we close. How do we do community together? Commit. Commit. Second, care. Care. God's word prescribes such care for you and for one another to grow in community. And I know, especially here in Placentia, you're checking us out. We don't offer these things called small groups yet, but I promise we will. Because the bigger we get, the smaller we have to grow. But do you know that God wants you to not just attend a worship service. He wants you to care and to be cared for. John chapter 13, verse 34, it's a command, love one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, honor one another. Galatians chapter six, verse two says, carry and bear one another's burdens. James chapter five, verse 16 says, confess your sins and pray for one another. 
Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says, encourage each other regularly. Romans chapter 15 verse 14 commands us, correct one another. Romans chapter 12 verse 5 commands, be devoted to one another. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13, serve one another. Do you enjoy this? Do you know how much the world is starving for this in any shape or form? Can you reconcile your present relationship involvement with all the biblical commands? Does the church of Jesus Christ require less commitment and care than a high school sports team? Should it? Should the church of Jesus Christ require less commitment and care than a club? God knows you, my friend, better than you. He's running laps around your self-analysis. And here's what he says. You want really your, you want your life to work? You want your marriage to work? You want your family to survive? You want to grow humbler, better, godlier? You need my church. You need the community of Jesus Christ. This is how we do it together. I mentioned I completed 10 years. This is not my 10th year. This is the start of the 11th year. June 2007. So now this is the start of the 11th year. I'm not good with these things. But I wrote you a letter. I wrote you a little letter. And I got a chance in the last two weeks to reflect to repent, to rejoice, to be so refreshed in the 10 years of what I have perceived, this is just my perspective, so that you know your pastor and his family's heart and feelings these last 10 years. I'll try to stick with this letter as much as I can. Dear Christ Central, in 2007, you were like my baby, cuddly and cute, somewhat manageable. Everything was fresh. Sonny and I set out in the first two years to do nothing else but with, to meet with as many of you as possible. First two years. To this day, Sonny, my wife, outhosts me. To this day, my daughter Taylor remembers more names. And my youngest daughter, Elizabeth, to this day, wants to babysit almost every kid. We did that because we wanted to make we wanted to get to know what makes our congregation the same and yet so different from any other congregation. Children's ministry has improved light years ahead. Since then, our first annual Christmas performance had some of Brian's kids and other kids, about eight to 10 kids on stage. And my daughter Elizabeth had a meltdown with Lucas Che because they were fighting over who hogs the mic. Eight to 10 kids. We've improved light years since then. Into my third through the fifth years, you kept growing, you kept responding. You spread the word, you brought your friends, you stepped up and served in countless ways. We outgrew this building called the Faith Center Chapel over in Artesia. Then we outgrew the one service in the main sanctuary. Into the third through the fifth years, I started though to confess, I started to have an affair with you. It really was an affair. You're like my second wife. It was intoxicating. I staked a lot of reputation and pride and worth and happiness and moodiness and value and meaning into how you were doing. 
That's why I cheered and yelled so hard even at turkey bowls for our church. In the fifth year, we became Christ Central. We ordained our first elders to what we call to form a session. As a Presbyterian church, that's how you become a church of your own. We realized our vision to become a maturing church by making our own moves and by making our own mistakes. That is singularly why, the most important reason why, we ever became a church of our own. To fully mature by making our own moves and our own mistakes. And also we sought to become more missional, missional, by more effectively targeting and seeking people who do not have a natural affinity with or affiliation with our mother Korean church. In my sixth year here, one year into we had just become a church, we lost a precious few brothers. And I have never been too good at assessing and identifying and expressing what my true condition is. I'm not good. I'm awful. First of all, I'm male. And second, I'm Asian. I remember when my dad died in 1992, when I took my semester off in Torrance, three or four days after he died, I didn't take a break from work. They gave me a normal day for the funeral. I went back to work at Shir Suleiman. And I realize now, going to a grief support group recently with some of you, the reason I do things like that is because it hurts less immediately. I want to avoid the pain and the hurt right now but it hurts less right now, but it'll hurt you more in the long run. I did the same thing when we lost three brothers that year. There was shock, there was depression, there were moments of darkness and despair, the likes of which I'd always heard, leadership is lonely, leadership is lonely. Oh, I felt that in spades. And for the very first time here as your pastor, I really didn't struggle with feelings that I wanted to quit. That's not what I was struggling with. I didn't feel like I wanted to quit. I felt, however, like never before, my character, my spirituality, my leadership, my prayers, my competency, and my care for you had quit on you. And I wrestled with that little animal of feeling so inadequate so outmaneuvered, so not capable, so not the right guy. And you know, to back up my sense of whole inadequacy was my sheer inexperience. I had that as a combination that year. But I have no idea how I'd have gotten through without a church like this, a session like this, with staff and friends that I've had especially that year. The seventh and eighth years were a bit blurry and numb. Didn't know how exhausted I was, but you gave my family and I a sabbatical. That was a godsend. Broke it up over three summers, two months apiece. And God kept raising and strengthening key leaders and staff and servants to build a healthier church by covering my weaknesses. 
I do not have time to list all my weaknesses. But God brought you, so many of you, to cover and do better in all the areas I fail. My seventh and eighth years, I was convinced that for better or for worse, I was met with patience. In sickness or in health, I never had to seriously doubt the depth and the sincerity of your love. And so with some rest and reflection and counseling and repentance came a renewal of body and soul over these last two years, year and a half to be exact. And an old dream came back with life-giving force, which I think is a sure mark that you're a little bit healthier and stronger, is that you are now again gripped to go after one more for the gospel. Two or three years, I can even think about that. But I had one vivid dream where I could see and taste the tears of people here and elsewhere who would be somehow healed, somehow touched, somehow born again, somehow consoled by the gospel. It was a similar type of dream when I first was called into ministry into seminary. I know it's from the Lord. And that old dream came back as you gave me some rest and my family some rest. Of all the things God commands us to do, be devoted, honor, serve, now we're on a mission to welcome one another. Welcome one another. Because this community has been this rich and good to me, why would I not want to welcome and share so that other people could enjoy it with me? Which now brings me to the start of my 11th year. So for our family and I, we start our 11th year today. And the truth is, just like 15 years ago, the day I got married to Sonny, here's the truth. Deep in my heart, I thought, you're getting the better end of the bargain. <laughs> you are lucky to get me. And the truth is now, I could never, never deserve you. Christ Central, I've gotten to see and experience more of Jesus on account of you. Even to all the people who have come and gone, for good reasons or not, please know that most pastor, most every pastor I know, and at least this one, it hurts. It's a loss. But it humbles and heals me to realize that you're always his, you were never mine, and God is gonna set everything straight. And those of you here, Those of you who have stuck and stayed with this local church no matter what, no matter how many times we moved worship locations and times, no matter how many similar stories and applications and insights you hear, no matter how many ways we fumbled and failed, even no matter how many YouTube references I make, you must be sticking and staying because you know Jesus sticks and stays with you. You are called Christ Central because I want you to know one thing above any other thing. 
Only Jesus Christ can make or break you. You are called Christ central because only Jesus Christ can make or break you. My job, so it's my job to lose my job. Again, I have zero plans to do that anytime soon. I'm not saying I'm going somewhere. I have no interest in going somewhere. Even this morning again, my oldest daughter Taylor said she knew I was going to read this letter. She's like, Daddy, we're not leaving, are we? <laughs> never, never, ever. I said, yes, Taylor, I know, I know we're not. Daddy has no desires, but I've got to share this. The main point of Ephesians chapter 4, which today I've just used very loosely, haven't I? Is that Christ alone is central to all of life and to this church. On Thursday night, the founding senior pastor of Cerritos Presbyterian Church, Reverend James Huangbo, finally laid his body down and he woke up in the arms of his Heavenly Father. James Huangbo, the founder of Cerritos Presbyterian Church, very church through other senior pastors who gave us the green light to become a church. He went home after a struggle with liver cancer. And I'm always encouraged. Doesn't matter how it goes right now. Doesn't matter how it goes right now. Although I'm among the happiest pastors I know, but it doesn't really doesn't matter how it goes right now because you know what? I look at James Wangbo and others. It always ends really well. It really ends really well. Life is so short, eternity is so long. He is woken up in the arms of his father. You are all invited to his funeral next Thursday back at Cerritos Presbyterian Church, 7 p.m. His burial service is at 11 a.m. at Rose Hills on Friday. But as I was writing this letter, I had already written it down, but let me give proper honor to someone who's already done it. I had written in my letter that the sure mark of godly leadership is that you leave it better than when you found it. Is you leave something better than when you found it. And I see that happening. And I pray that you would run better without me. I pray that you would flourish better if I fail. I pray that I could leave something better off. Because this is about Christ Central. I thank Reverend James Hongbo and every pastor who's come. Because I've seen him do that. There was, I think, two or three weeks ago, uh, I dressed up in a suit and uh, I threw up my back putting on my, my coat. <laughs> <clears throat> it stiffened up, couldn't breathe, and I was hunched over during praise time on that day over there, over the railing. I could not stand straight up. Phil attended to me. He laid hands on me, warm hands. He got charismatic on me. He anointed me. He healed me. I felt better. And later on, in between the 11.30 and 1.15 worship service, Matt Yang, who is a doctor of physical therapy, was cracking and working on my back. And I was saying, Matt, Matt, why does it keep happening to me? What's wrong with my back? And he used all this kind of medical terminology that I had no clue what he was talking about. But then he just said, you know, your problem is that your normal posture is like this. You're usually seated, aren't you? You're usually reading or studying. You're just like this. You're hunched down, you're hunkered down. And I didn't tell him this, but thank you, Matt. I am so prone to look down. I'm prone to be hunkered down. But when I do get to look up, 
I get to look up at Christ Central, I feel so much better. You have been like a baby. You've been like my bride. But you have become more and more, more and more like my beautiful Savior, Jesus. I get to see and experience Jesus because of you. Thank you. I love you.